24 Breaking KK with Baudrin and Barry. I am your host, Jess. They call me the Booker Baudrin. With me, my co-host, he is single and ready to mingle. And he, I have to tell you folks, before we start, the person we interviewed today, Barry, was really brokenhearted when he found out she was married. Oh, that's all I'm going to say, Barry. Yeah, when she she dropped my husband twice, uh, <laughs> you could just feel the, my heart just sinking uh, down to my knees. But just a tremendous guest. I'm super excited for this episode, Jeff. And as I am for every episode, it, to me, this is uh, one of the highlights of my week, being able to record and uh, spend time with you and Lou. But what a guest we have this week. Yes, indeed. Let me just, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to start this off by giving you this person's credentials. And then we'll throw it to the interview. But by the way, we'll also be having our usual match of the week. Uh, and it, let me just tell you, it's a kick-ass six-star match from uh, Meltzer. It, it is a little Mitsuhara Misawa uh, versus Toshiaki Kawada. And holy crap, we'll get to that in a little bit. But let me talk about our guest Our guest today. Our guest is a, a lady named Lily Hayden. Now, some of you may know Lily Hayden uh, from uh, her appearance with the great Rodney Dangerfield, Joe Pesci. And Jennifer Jason Lee in a little film called Easy Money, uh, 1983. Barry, I believe episode one, that was the movie we discussed. Am I correct, my man? You, Jeff, you are 100% correct. Check. We'll get that out of the way quickly. So let me give you a little bit of uh, background on Miss Lily Hayden, who was like 12 or 11 when the movie was made. And now let's discuss her life. Her father was the first to mass produce LSD in this country. Check. Boom. That's number one. Her, her, her mother, Lotus, first woman to ever appear at the comedy club in Hollywood. That's a big check right there, Barry. Would you say? That's a huge check. Absolutely. Yes, okay. Uh, as a child was offered the opportunity to choose her own name. Helicopter is what she chose, Barry. Check. A member of a cult as a child. Barry, right there. We've got four hours worth, okay? Began playing the violin at age eight. Now, for those of you that have seen the great Roddy Dangerfield movie, uh, Easy Money, she played the violin in the movie, okay? Then, at age 15, began performing with the Los Angeles Philharmonic at age 15. Graduate from Brown University, uh, during the interview, I believe, Barry, you pointed out, this is our first ever Ivy League grad here on Breaking k Fable with Bowdrin and Barry. Am I correct? You're 100% correct, Jeff. Thank you. Uh, uh, she's been on The Tonight Show with Jay Leno. She uh, performed with Cindy Lauper on the True Colors tour. How about this? Performed at Coachella with Roger Waters doing Dark Side of the Moon. She won a 2018 Grammy. Uh, under the uh, the heading of New Age group with her group Optimum Moon. She has played and performed with such luminaries as No Doubt, Tom Petty, Herbie Hancock, Tracy Chapman, Sting, Robert Plant, and Jimmy Page. Matchbox 20, Seal. She has been called by George Clinton. A little Parliament Funkadelic there for you, Bear? Just a little. Jimmy, Jimi Hendrix with a violin. We will post links to this lady's YouTube page where you will see her performing on the violin such songs as Cashmere and I've Seen All Good People. We are going to tell you more and more about the life and times of Lily freaking Hayden. Lou, take us to our interview because I can't wait any longer. 
Barry, truly at this point in the history of Breaking Kayfabe with Bowdrin and Barry, we have come full circle, my friend, because the very first episode, some three and a half years ago, what did we reference, Barry? What movie did we talk about? We referenced, Jeff, one of our favorite movies of all time, the Rodney Dangerfield classic, Easy Money. Yes. And as a matter of fact, the uh, lovely Mrs. Bowdrin and I watched Easy Money last night. And so we are pleased to be joined by one of the co-stars of that movie. And may I say, folks, if you want to do a deep dive on someone's interesting life, please join Barry and I in welcoming the great Lily Hayden, co-star not only of that movie, but oh my God, so many other things that have happened in her life. Lily, first of all, thank you so much for joining us here today. Well, thank you so much for having me. It's been a long time in the making. Yes, indeed. So... Yeah, Barry, I don't even know where to begin. Uh, a concert violinist, a lady who has performed with, among others, we're talking Roger Waters. We're talking, how about Robert Plant and Jimmy Page? Yeah, that's pretty good. A woman who George Clinton has called the Jimi Hendrix of the violin. Barry, you go ahead. Take it, my friend. Yeah, and I don't know where to even start, Jeff. First off, so you've just listed some amazing accomplishments right there, but Correct me if I'm wrong, and I don't believe I am. Have we ever had someone who's graduated from an Ivy League school with us previously? Ah, <laughs> uh, that would be a no. That'd be a that would be a definite no. no. Yeah. Well, it, so on top of everything else you just said, and then we're going to talk about her parents. Eventually, so we'll get to Lily. We'll just we'll get to Lily at some point. Her but, way. But her mother was uh, somebody that you and I are both familiar with, but she also graduated. She uh, she studied at Brown University and got a degree in political science, Jeff. So I don't believe we've ever had somebody with a degree in political science on before as a guest either. I'm just going to point out that that's very impressive. I graduated with an Associate of Arts from Broward Community College. So, you know, it's like the same thing pretty much, Bear. Yeah, I, I got a pat on the back and I was shown the door from several universities. But hey, that's a whole different story right there. Jeez. But Lily, we are absolutely thrilled that you're joining us today. Uh, this, and as you said, this is a long time in the making. I, I had reached out to you, uh, I think, was it before the pandemic or maybe right around the pandemic? And uh, and then I as I was doing research, Lily, I was uh, stunned to see you actually had COVID last summer. Yes, I did. Yeah. But that, uh, hello. Let me just say hello to you okay. and your wonderful audience. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, absolutely. So, but you are fully recovered. So, how was it? How was it? I mean, maybe that's a dumb question. How was it having COVID? But were there any effects, any lasting effects for you? Well, I guess I, I would, uh, started to forget when I had already said hello to an audience. Um, <laughs> 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 uh, well, you know, this was a better hello. Uh, no, well, my I had an inhibited lung capacity for uh, several months, actually. Uh, but and, and and actually, the best thing about COVID is that it reminds us that how precious life is and how important it is to breathe, especially when you can't. Uh, <laughs> so there were a couple of days where I couldn't really breathe, uh, and I was I was a little scared, and it sort of you know gave me an insight into what was actually you know what this this is actually doing to people and it connected me to, you know, kind of the guy, the zeitgeist in a way. Um, and it got me to have the conviction to be able to sing a simple song like, uh, more love, more light, darkness, don't stand a chance against us, which is the lyric to the 
title song on my new CD, More which Life. I, which I just listened to on uh, YouTube today. It's very good. I really enjoyed it. So let's start off uh, going back. Uh, as I mentioned, you were in Easy Money, but one of the things you were known for in Easy Money was that you were playing the violin. And I uh, noticed that you began playing violin at eight years old. How did you get started on that? What got you interested in that? Well, my mom, Lotus Weinstock, used to tell people that I learned to play violin in the womb, and it was very irritating. <laughs> um, and uh, But I, I actually had a dream that I could play violin, um, and I told my mom, and for my eighth birthday, we went to the violin shop, uh, the music store, and rented a violin because uh, we were on welfare and couldn't, you know, and lived in, an, uh, in a little guest house where our rent was $75 a month. Um, and, uh, and she, she found a way to, uh, to get me this violin and, uh, she wrote a song the day that I got my violin in a key, uh, in G major, which if, uh, anybody, even if you're not musical, you can, uh, or basically understand that G major means that I could play open strings without knowing how to actually play the violin. So I could have a sense of jamming and and um connection with my mom musical connection with my mom right away without even knowing how to play and that was the greatest gift because it set me off on a path where i um i i had this affinity for music and 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 it was really my my first and best language uh, where i could express emotion in a safe and uh and a way where people actually wanted to listen yeah, and, and from some of the research that we did, too, you were playing with the Los Angeles Philharmonic at the age of 15. Would you be the youngest person to ever play with the L.A. Philharmonic? Oh, I'm certain that I am not the youngest person or, or that I wasn't the youngest person to have played. And it, this was a, a special concert where uh, Luciano Berrio, a very famous um, uh, Italian modern composer, uh, had the had uh, the, the a couple of soloists play with their students so it was uh, it's a little bit of hype but i did i did in fact do this solo with the uh the, the la philharmonic at 15. so barry and i were uh, discussing uh you know your movie easy money with rodney dangerfield H- how old were you when you made that movie if you don't mind me asking because I think I the character, 11. the character was twelve. I, I think the character right. they said was twelve. So here you are, yeah. you're on screen, uh, or you're shooting a film with, among others, Rodney Dangerfield, Joe Pesci, who had been in Raging Bull by that time. Uh, you had Jennifer Jason Leigh coming off Fast Times with Ridgemont High. Those are some pretty heavy hitters. How was it uh, being part of that filming? I had no idea. I was so consumed <laughs> with, uh, with you know, just current events. I was such a straight laced complete little prude uh, and I had no idea I was not into pop, pop culture at all I was into classical music I just thought everybody was super cool and uh, my mom uh, was was right there with me so it felt and I was very comfortable around celebrities and and the comedic community because my mom was a stand-up comedian Lotus Weinstock the first woman to perform at the comedy store and she was engaged to Lenny Bruce the last year of his life and so I, you know, we, we had uh, Christmas and Thanksgiving with Jerry Seinfeld and Jay Leno and Larry Miller and Bill Maher. It was, there were no, you know, I was not impressed by celebrity. Uh, I was just kind of there to have fun and, um, and, and be, you know, 
try to make the world a better place, I guess. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. A guy I have that no I idea. Can... Yeah, a guy that I considered a friend was also in the movie, which was the late Taylor Negron. Uh, and yes, he was Taylor he played was Julio. Was he a good friend of yours as well? Uh, at the time, my mom and he were friends because they were both in the comedy scene together. Um, uh, but uh, and I knew him just from around the comedy store because I was, you know, this little person basically taking naps on stage while my mom would perform. Uh, and we did perform together. Uh, Taylor became a dear friend. And actually, I don't know if you're aware, but he wrote a wonderful one man show that uh, we uh, and then we combined forces. And I wrote music and sang songs in the middle as sort of musical commentary in this show. And we we spent a summer at the Edinburgh uh, Theater Festival um, and uh, performed at several esteemed places in L.A. Uh, so we got to hang out as collaborators and he was just so brilliant and so soulful and we miss him and uh and uh, yeah that was a great experience so yes he was he was amazing he had such a big heart and uh our interactions were only uh basically electronic so we would but he just was a uh such a warm guy and i was so you know devastated when he passed away <laughs> um it's just such a warm guy. But, you know, you talked about your mom and we did a full review of the documentary that I aired. I, Jeff, I believe it was Showtime or HBO. It was, it was one Showtime, of the two. Showtime, I believe. Showtime. And it was on the Comedy Store. Uh, and uh, your mom was mentioned on. I don't know if you had seen that or heard about that, but your mom. Yeah, was several people. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And, I watched a little bit of it. Yeah, it was beautiful. Um, I haven't wa- finished watching it. I uh, was waiting for my husband to join me. Uh, and. Uh, yeah, beautiful Mike Binder. I remember him as a kid. Uh, yeah, and that's and we had Marshall Warfield on with us to discuss the documentary. Uh, but I, as you started saying, and I, I really this to me is so fascinating. Uh, you would mention how you would be backstage, maybe taking a nap. So give us any memories that you have of going back to the comedy store. You were there in its glory days. I mean that that to me is like that's it doesn't get any better than, than what you were able to witness and, and able to be a part of. What are your memories of those days? You know, uh, probably the best memory uh, that I can share is uh, my mom and Richard Pryor were, uh, were, I guess, pretty good friends. And he was recording one of his, he was taping uh, one of his comedy store specials, you know, or, you know, one of his famous uh, like HBO specials, or whatever at the comedy store. And um, and I was there and we were all hanging out in his trailer, uh, you know, his big trailer outside the comedy store after the show. And he, am I allowed to curse in this show? Oh, we, oh, we, we actually we encourage it. Yes, Please. we encourage it. Oh, yes. good. Uh, so uh, he said, motherfucker on, you know, like just hanging out. And I was there, I was eight or something. And he looked at me and he came up and he said, I'm so sorry. And, and then, and then he sent me uh, a big basket of fruit and flowers after to, to apologize for cursing in front of me. He said, uh, with a note that said, sorry, I have, oh, and he apologized up in the moment. And I said, it's all right. I've seen it in the bathroom walls at school. <laughs> and he said, and he, he uh, sent me a big basket of flowers and, and fruit that said, uh, sorry, I have a mouth like a bathroom wall. And, uh, and I said, it's okay. You can make it up to me by conducting my orchestra. Um, and I was part of the junior Philharmonic and we had this thing where we would have celebrities come in and be a guest conductor. It would be sort of a comedic sort of comedy relief in the middle of this concert. And he came and conducted the orchestra 
with wow, in that's all of its cool. glory. I have no idea if there's, and I mean, it was pre-camera phones, so I, I have no idea if it was filmed or if there's anything to document oh. this. But he did this. He got up on the, you know, on the little um, conductor's mount, and you know, took the baton and did what what you can imagine, just like the the most hilarious, wonderful body language for this orchestra and giant audience of uh, uh, of, of proud parents and community um yeah so he and he was beautiful and he and his daughter rain Pryor, who's also a wonderful performer um uh and i rain and i have become good friends as well and my mom was uh you know i guess my mom and richie are uh uh are friends in heaven oh i love that so barry I, i'm just sitting here thinking you know i and i on the grand scheme of things, if you're a kid in middle school and Richard Pryor comes to your school to help your uh, your orchestra, eh, that's pretty high on the old scale there. That's pretty unbelievable. It's a, it, this is, a, but a, as she just said, this is prior to the days of everybody having some sort of recording device on them via the phone. But you'd have to think there was one proud father in this audience that somehow has recorded this and has the VHS tapes, because I know personally, I want to see this, Jeff. Yes. And, and if that person, I want to also, yes, if that person reaches out to us, little... yes. Yeah. And we will, Let's we make will make a contest. Yeah. We okay. will, <laughs> we will, we will give it. that person a shout out here on breaking K fame. That's, that's worth its weight in gold, Barry. Uh, you know, there's no question Absolutely. about that. We have, thousands of listeners that listen to us on a weekly basis. And we should say we have done, you're not going to believe this. And as I say, when I die on my tombstone, I want to have Jeff, you know exactly where I'm going, but I want to have father to be, cause that that's the most important thing I've ever done father. But right under that, we have done 183 episodes of this podcast, Lily. And we have never wow. missed a week, never missed a week. That's 183 straight. And do you want to hear even something even crazier? My partner, yeah. Jeffrey Wayne Bowdrin. Hello. This guy was facing cancer last year and he had a mm -hmm. rough battle with cancer and still in the hospital, in the hospital bed would actually record episodes. I mean, does it, does it get any more astounding than that? That is perfect. That is perfect. I have a couple, I have two things to uh, say in addition to congratulations. Um, one is that that is absolutely the spirit of the showbiz that I grew up in, where you just don't fucking miss a show. You you know, you could be, and in fact, my mom used to say, if you brought cameras on, put cameras on people and, you know, who were dying in a the hospital, they'd probably wake up for a little bit to, you know, give that last performance, you know, right. give that performance. Uh, I'm so glad that you made it. Congratulations. Thank I hope you. I that appreciate that. Everything resolved easily. Um, and there's a, a funny uh, story of this, uh, this 90 year old who works in the circus uh, cleaning the elephant shit. Uh, and he uh, and this young guy walks out at the end of the circus one night and sees the 90 year old and says, uh, man, why are you still working? Why don't you retire? And the 90 year old says, uh, uh, what, and give up show business? <laughs> um, you know, cleaning the elephant ship. Uh, so that's sort of a, a nice metaphor uh, for for how I see. It. It, we're we're kind I, of I thought, you were, I thought you were comparing our podcast to the elephant ship there. For well, there you may be there. <laughs> uh, no, only just that 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 the that the need to you know that the that drive to just never give 
you know, never stop doing what we do, even with, you know, rain or shine or how, you know, how uh, difficult it might be. You know, it's the, this is what we crave and this is what we have to do. So congratulations on your 183 episodes. 84. Am I 84? 184? Yes. Yeah. Uh, we certainly appreciate right, it. Number 80, 184. Correct. Yes. So let me just ask you, as Barry mentioned earlier, you uh, are a fine graduate of the Ivy League, Brown University. How did you get interested? What What made you go, uh, if you were living in California, what made you decide to go east to Brown University? I had a fascination with uh, with the East Coast uh, schools, the Ivy League, the, that whole kind of the, the, the tradition, the, <clears throat> the uh, elegant thinking, um, just from reading books in school, you know, like probably I'm sure Holden Caulfield had something to do with my fascination with that kind of that uh, aesthetic. Um, and also my mom's dear friend, Emily Levine, who has just recently passed. I don't know if you know her, but she was a wonderful comedian um, and she had gone to Harvard. And when uh, when my mom and she and the other comedians would play um, charades, she always was the best. So I thought, oh, I should go to Harvard. I became impressed with, I wanted to go to an Ivy League school because of my mom's comic friend who did well at charades. And and then I thought that Brown was the hippest one. Um, And indeed, it was a great place for my little mind to develop. Um, I was, I've always been uh, impassioned by social justice. Um, And so that was by the poli-sci major. Um, and I've managed to thankfully be able to, even though I decided that, uh, you know, making music was going to be more fulfilling for me, I have mostly been working on, uh, on, as a film composer on projects that have real meaning and have a social justice component. Um, so, uh, I'd love to, to share some of the scoring that I've been doing as well with you guys. Absolutely too. And it's, uh, I was that's actually my next question, but just based off of the fact that you were in Brown, I did want to discuss this with you. One of the components of what we do, our, our show is literally, it's about anything that is related to pop culture in any form, but we love food. And I could talk about food for, as Jeff will tell you, 24 hours straight. I'll never shut up. You were in Rhode Island for several years, gigantic Portuguese community in Rhode Island, and that is some of the best food, in my opinion, in the world. Did you like the Portuguese food? You know, I didn't eat much during college because uh, uh, I was paying for it myself, and so I was mostly eating ramen. Um, uh, but I did play with a Dominican band while I was there, uh, so I got a taste of uh, not so much the Portuguese, but the uh, Dominican Republic vibe, you know, so that kind of salsa the Latino um, flavor of it. Uh, but I was just in Portugal uh, on my way to go play at the Angola Jazz Festival last year before the world shut down and uh, and got to eat some of that Portuguese food. And it was absolutely delicious. So I, I got to it 20 years later. Well, there you go. Uh, so as I was making some notes before we started recording about all the different uh, people that you've been associating with, uh, you, you've been on the tonight show with Jay Leno, but I noticed that besides performing with Cindy Lauper on her true colors tour, you also had a chance to play Coachella with Roger Waters and you did his dark side of the moon album. Uh, how amazing must that have been? It was, uh, it was really 
phenomenal. Uh, I love that music. I didn't, it was, and in fact, I realized later that one of the seminal moments that really made me want to do what I do was actually watching Pink Floyd um, at a concert in England uh, that I somehow ended up at um, and hearing them do that spacious, soaring, soulful music. And I was like, that is what I want to do. And I'm just so thrilled that I got to, I got to do that, that it came about because I made an album, uh, I've made a bunch of solo albums, as well as being, having the, the honor of, of uh, you know, collaborating with the people that you've mentioned. Um, but one of my solo albums, um, which was called Place Between Places, was inspired by a, a bit of Pink Floyd. And my publicist sent my album to Roger Waters' publicist. And, and as luck would have it, Roger called me on the phone and told me he wanted me to come perform with him at Coachella to play and sing the lead on Comfortably Numb. And I, it, I didn't realize it was, you know, I was like, is this really? Uh, you know, can you imagine if it, hello, Lily, this is Roger Waters. Uh, Roger. <laughs> Barry, Barry have you ever got a phone call from Roger Waters? <laughs> and, no, but yeah, uh, I had somebody uh, throw water on me once, Jeff. It's a whole nother story. Uh, <laughs> um, and, uh, and I said, well, I was listening to the dark side of the moon when we were recording this. He said, I know I could tell. <laughs> so, uh, I so it, it was sort of acknowledging that I had been a little bit uh, I, I don't know if derivative is the right word I wouldn't say it was derivative but it was definitely influenced by so I, I, that was one of the highlights um, although I have to say I grew up playing classical music and listening to my mom's music because in addition to being a comedian my mom was a singer-songwriter so I didn't have a lot of pop culture references uh, until I got to college so it uh, sort of you know, even though I did get to play with Pedro and Plant, I didn't really know Led Zeppelin's music or any of these people. You know, it just sort of was this, by the time I got to pop culture, I was, uh, you know, decades late. Uh, and so that's, I guess maybe that's why I ended up playing with the legends that were ahead of, you know, ahead of me because I was just catching up. Um, but uh, it was, I really got to experience it with, uh, without the baggage of the kind of, of of idolizing but them but rather just experiencing their music in real time and that is a thrill that i i'm just so grateful for yeah and one of the guys you played with uh and i know jeff and myself are both massive massive huge fans tom petty uh you know, uh, I'm born and raised in Florida. Jeff lived in Florida for decades, and Tom Petty was a Florida guy. So if you if you have any connection to Florida, you have to love Tom Petty. It's one of the the rules down there. But uh, what was it like playing with Tom Petty? And then my second part of that question is, what does Lily Hayden listen to uh, on her turntable? Like, what are you? What kind of music are you listening to? Uh, well, I don't have too much to say about Tom, except that he was a total gentleman, and it was a real pleasure to be a part of his world for the brief moments that I was. Um, and, uh, and what I listen to is all sorts of stuff. I mean, I, I basically, I jump around, um, because I'm, uh, I make my albums. I have to sort of, you know, you go through phases where you've got to kind of be in a vacuum so you don't write anybody else's music, but I love Radiohead and Bjork and I love, I, I, I like Lana Del Rey even. Um, I like, some of the new music that I've been turned on to by, uh, I ended up scoring a TV show that's been uh, very successful lately called Ginny and Georgia. And uh, they use a lot of new pop music. So I ended up having to really immerse myself 
in in some of those uh, Spotify lists and you know the EDM stuff um, and uh, and so I needed to and the soundtrack album just came out it's, uh, the Ginny and Georgia soundtrack album uh, and so I I love to kind of I love Kate Bush and so I was able to pull in kind of the modern and older references and just end up playing for my heart uh, and sort of so when you're writing music, listening is a, is part of the writing process in a way. It's sort of, you know, the, the, the delicate balance of how much to listen to and how much to, uh, to kind of separate yourself from the world of other people's music so you can really hear the voice in your head. So I listen to uh, classical music. I listen to um, uh, different film composers. Uh, I love uh, Marco Beltrami. I love Harry Gregson Williams. Got to work with... Uh, Hans Zimmer and both of wow. uh, and uh, there's a wonderful pianist named Paul Cantillon who I love. Um, uh, I listen to uh, and my own band and I love lots of world music. I've got my my solo stuff, my uh, album that just came out, and also uh, a band called Opium Moon, which is uh, which is my band with my husband, and that's influenced by uh, music like Ravi Shankar and. Um, and Arvo Part, and uh, and actually, I you know I think uh, now that you've asked that, I'm going to actually make a little page on my website um, for uh, influences because I'd love to turn people on to some of the wonderful stuff that I love. I would like to mention that your uh, your band Optimum Moon won a Grammy in 2018 for best new age music. So a big thumbs up on that. So not to name. <laughs> Not to name drop here, but let me just tell the uh, the listeners some of the other people that you've played with, uh, including uh, Gwen Stefani and No Doubt, uh, Herbie Hancock, Tracy Chapman, Sting. Uh, we mentioned Robert Plant and Jimmy Page, Matchbox Twenty, The Seal. So what I wanted to ask you about is I was doing a, the old deep dive on YouTube for your music is I noticed you playing Led Zeppelin's song Cashmere. And mm-hmm. I guess I was curious, what made you decide to pick that particular song out? And we are going to post a link to that because Barry, wow, her performance on the violin of Cashmere is amazing. Absolutely. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, well, I got to play Cashmere with Page and Plant uh, on their last U.S. tour. Uh, actually, no, uh, that was the second to last. I got to open for them with my band on their last U.S. tour. Uh, but before that, I sat in with them on Kashmir and um, and just loved it so much. And it was kind of it became sacred in a way. Uh, but but I kept, you know, hearing that riff in my head. It's like this indelible riff. Dig it up, dig it up, dig it up, dig it up. You know, so I, I kind of had to. And I called Robert and got the blessing to uh to do it and uh, and he sent me uh and he he said he loved the uh my version so um so it just it was kind of i felt like i was in i, I was extended family to, so to speak and i also did a cover of uh parliament funkadelic's maggot brain which is uh probably my favorite cover um so uh so if you haven't checked that out that's, that's yes you also you also did a cover of uh, i've seen all good people that's and and that's excellent also well, thank you. Yeah, I actually I did that for uh, there's a series of documentaries for uh, called Zeitgeist uh, with it's like one, two, and three. And my friend who made that Zeitgeist the Zeitgeist trilogy uh, asked me to do All Good People for the ending of uh, of the uh, third one. Uh, they're 
profound uh, social documentaries, uh, that uh, social commentary, um, and uh, and all good people at the end of that. Yeah. Well, well, the, the new album that we've been referencing is called More Love. It is Lily's first solo album in six years, if I'm correct. Uh, and okay. last year, you actually, you did, uh, you scored three films or three different uh, movie or television projects. One was Strip Down, Rise Up, uh, Ruth, Justice Ginsburg in her own words, and the aforementioned Ginny and Georgia, which I believe is uh, was number one on Netflix for quite a while. So what was the, tell me what it's like, and, and part of the reason I ask is I love movie scores. Danny Elfman, to me, uh, I've been an Oingo Boingo fan going back, you know, 40 years, but what he's done with movies and scoring of movies, but, uh, you know, there are so many greats, John Williams, that are out there. What was it like for you getting into that genre and being able to score movies and TV shows? I love it so much. It's actually uh, very connected to my background in comedy and, and being an actress, um, because when you're an actor, you have to respond emotionally to whatever's happening in the scene. And I do that exact same thing as a film composer. So, uh, so I, I love it. And especially, I hadn't done that much comedy, surprisingly, given my background. Um, but Jenny and Georgia was a chance to really kind of play with some of those comedic um, uh, devices uh, more actively. Uh, so this and it's a comedy drama, but uh, it was really fun doing comedy in that way. Yeah, it's, for me, it feels like an extension of being an actor um, and just using my musical brain, which is really kind of more developed than my social brain, probably. I love so it. Yeah. I, I was going to say uh, on our last episode of the show, we, uh, Barry and I, were talking, uh, we're talking parenting. And so as I was looking into your background, one of the things I found very interesting about your mother and father was that they gave you as a child uh, the choice where you could make the choice of your own name and and you picked helicopter. And and I just I have to ask you about that story. It's so funny. Yeah, I uh, well, I grew up on a commune. Um, My mom joined this uh, this kind of cultish commune uh, called the Brotherhood of the Source. Uh, and there's a wonderful kind of cultish uh, documentary uh, uh, that is called The Source Family. It's wonderful. Um, and uh, and it was kind of an offshoot of the American Sikh. Uh, so it was Kundalini Yoga and lots of uh, fruit smoothies and polygamy. And uh, my mom finally left when uh, Father Yod, the guru, uh, asked him asked her to be his 13th wife. And... Uh, and my father, who was known as the Acid King at the time, running from the law for having turned on uh, the Beatles and the Rolling Stones and, you know, and thousands of others onto LSD. He was the first person to mass produce LSD. Uh, along I was going to bring family. that up. I was going to um, bring it up, but thank you. And so, uh, so, uh, the, so, you know, the Acid King versus Father Yod. Uh, and we ended up leaving the commune uh, where my mom had chose uh, took the name Lotus uh, after being Maury Hayden um, in the comedy world. She took the name Lotus, um, and my name was changed to Cherub, like the little fat angel. And uh, and so uh, you know names were kind of fluid at the time. You know everybody is uh, <laughs> you know gender fluid these days. But I was name fluid, um, and uh, so my mom asked me what I wanted to be called, and I. I guess I had a thing about being kind of independent and, uh, you know, autonomous. 
So helicopter seemed like the natural name. Uh, so yeah, I was helicopter for six months. Wow. So as, as we begin to to wind up to, and this will be multi-part, uh, please let everybody know where we where we can get your music and where we can hear your music. And then I do have a question for you. Uh, what would Lily Hayden like to accomplish that she's never accomplished? You have done literally you have made uh box office movies you've starred on television shows you've uh you're an amazing musical performer you graduated obviously from a an ivy league school you're beautiful you know it's all there everything is there what's next on your list what what do you want to accomplish well thanks um uh well for me i want to just keep doing what i'm doing but on bigger and bigger scales. So uh so the new album is really a compilation of songs and score. Um and some of the score is kind of really the sound that's in my that runs through my veins and is the sound of the films that I'd like to be scoring. So I'd like to just keep making, you know, music that's both albums and and supporting movies that stories that that open people's hearts. So um you know I'd like to there's a I guess basically any filmmaker who wants to hear kind of a fantastic, fantastical sound that is both heartfelt and, uh, and a little bit enchanted and, uh, and quirky, uh, that's, that's who I want to be collaborating with. So that it's kind of, and, and that and writing a symphony. Wow. Um, I, I just want to keep doing what I'm doing. The, the ideas and, um, uh, and kind of the spirit of these next creations are all kind of hovering around me. And uh, so I'm waiting to uh, to be impregnated and give birth to the next works of art. Wow. That's uh, Jeff. Have we ever had somebody on that would wanted to be impregnated and give birth to works of art? I think we've had people that have, have been impregnated, but not with works. Never. Support. Okay. Yeah, so, so Lily, Lily, where can people find your music? How can our listeners support you? That's one thing that I truly love. Our people will buy it. They don't, whatever it is, whether, you know, it's music or books or uh, DVDs, whatever it might be. How can we, how can we support you? Oh, that's such a nice thing to ask. And thank you to your audience uh, for being that kind of people. Uh, so lilyhayden.com. It's spelled a little weird, so hopefully this will uh, resonate. L i l i h a y d for dog and for November. No e between the d and the n. So it's lilyhayden.com. Uh, it's everywhere. I mean, it's on you know, iTunes, Spotify, Amazon, um, all the places where people get music. Uh, and you can just follow me on on Instagram or so it's just at lilyhayden. Um, and, uh, but go to Spotify, the, the new record is up and so is the soundtrack for Ginny and Georgia. And it's really fun, uh, music. I just, I'm, I'm loving it. And if you reach out to me, I will be in touch with you personally. And you can also uh, get, uh, physical copies of stuff on the, um, on the website. If you, if you reach out to me and, and you can email me directly and I will respond. That's very cool. So I kind of told a fib. To Barry, I told him that I had no more questions, but now I have one more question before we finally let you go. I was watching a, a clip of an interview that you had done where uh, the gentleman that was interviewing you asked you about people that you have not 
uh, either performed with or recorded with that you might be interested in? And you mentioned Prince. Uh, and of course, yeah. unfortunately, that chance is, uh, is gone now. But is there anybody out there, and no matter what sort of music, that you would sit there and say, you know, we mentioned a lot of names. Anybody that you would say, wow, I'd really like to record or, or perform with that person. Anybody you have in mind specifically? You know, Bjork comes to mind, actually. Uh, and uh, yeah, and I'm sure that there are some other people, uh, you know, who I really love. And I've actually met him. I got to hang with him a little bit at in Hans Zimmer's world uh, back when he was there. Uh, it's Junkie XL. I really love his film scores and uh, I'd love to work with him. I like, uh, well, I was going to say Daft Punk, but I guess they just broke up. Uh, um, I don't know. I guess uh, in... Um, I have to give that a little bit more thought. I wish I had, uh, you know, you'd think by now I'd have some names. Uh, I just hadn't gotten over Prince, I guess. Uh, so I'll be playing with him in heaven for sure. <laughs> yeah. That's kind of how we felt you, you too. Might... when, when, uh, Prince died close to Tom Petty and David Bowie, they weren't so far apart. And I think, you know, Jeff and I were in contact during that whole period Go, man, there's like all of our idols are just dropping right there. They're absolutely huge. But Lily, we know that you have got to go. You have a meeting coming up. I got to say, Jeff, we'll keep this between us. I think this is my favorite interview of all time. Shh. I won't, tell, I, won't, I won't tell anybody if you don't bear. All right. We'll keep it a secret. Lily, we are eternally grateful. Will you come back and join us again? I'd be delighted to. Thank you so much. It was a pleasure to chat with you all. And I hope that if you're ever in L.A., we'll all get together and have, uh, and have tea and talk comedy. Deal. Wonderful. Cheers. Thanks so much, everybody. Thank you. Barry, how happy were we with that interview? Wow, she was so much fun. Jeff, so we have done a hundred and this is our 184th episode. I think I was on all but two, which would have been two and three. We have done dozens of interviews. I'm not sure that I have ever seen you as excited as you were for this one, for this interview that we did with Lily Hayden. Tremendous. My opinion, this is a Dave Meltzer six star interview right there. Well, I will say, first of all, fantastic interview, but. I'm going to go out on a limb and say without question, this is the all-time name-dropping, not by her, <laughs> by us, name-dropping right. you know, interview ever. You know, hey, I'm sorry, Roger Waters calls you, okay? Yeah. Oh, hold on, I, I want to do cashmere. Let me dial up Robert Plant. Yeah, that's, uh, that's pretty heady stuff, I got to be honest, Barry. That is, it's, uh, they, you know, to me, how exciting, you know, at the end of the day, when you can sit back and I'm going to call my daughter after we're done recording. And I'm going to be like, do you know who we just recorded with? And she's good. She's, she's going to know Lily Hayden from the TV show, uh, Ginny and Georgia, because she watched it. And I'll be like, the lady who did the music was just on our show. So yeah, it, it's exciting. This is, that was, that was so much fun, but what a, what a, what a resume. Like when you think about it, you know, it, Jeff, we sit back and I'm like thinking, okay. Let's see. I, I start to make a list for myself of things that I've accomplished. Mm, let's see. I had lunch today. I showered. You know, these are big. That's big for big. you because quite exactly. Honestly, it's become a problem for her, as you just said. You know, graduating with a degree in poli sci from Brown University, playing with you know Tom Petty, Roger Waters, Prince. It, it's just astounding. 
what a talented, talented individual. What a really nice, warm person, too. Like, you got this vibe from her in speaking with her that just real, just, just, I just love her. I, I got to tell you, my favorite interview of all time, Jeff. So, Barry, of course, fresh off our interview with Lily, I had the chance last night uh, at the time we record this with the lovely Mrs. Bowdrin to sit and watch Easy Money, which I quite frankly, I don't know if I've watched it in a couple of years. 1983, Rodney Dangerfield, Joe Pesci, uh, Jennifer Jason Lee, Taylor Negron, so many great character actors in this, you know, uh, and wow, uh, it was just a fun film. And the great part was when my wife said, yeah, this is a guy's film. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) And here's something I didn't realize until I started watching the movie again. Barry, Tom Noonan was one of uh, Rodney's friends. What is Tom Noonan famous for? Uh, Well, Tom, so I, I got Tom Noonan in two films. The one you're thinking of is going to be Manhunter. Yes, he is Francis Dollarhide. Francis Dollahide. And let's be honest, he was that that to me was really a career defining moment. The guy should have been a much bigger star because he pulls off that role. He was incredible. And I still think the ending scene of the movie where they're playing Inagata DeVita is probably one of the top five movie scenes of all time. He's great. Was also great in the movie FX with Brian Brown. Yes. uh, yes. Brian Dennehy. Absolutely. Big fan of Tom. Tom Noonan. Yes. So anyway, so uh, the movie Easy Money, uh, still a classic. It was in our tournament. Uh, surprisingly, I believe lost, uh, was it first or second round? Uh, but it, as we said in the very first episode, I remember this, Barry, uh, Easy Money is dirty Rodney. Uh, back to school is more clean, uh, cleaned up Rodney. W- would that be fair to say? That's super fair to say. It's a, e- Easy Money is was raw. It was a, it was Rod, as far as I'm aware, it was Rodney's first big major starring role. And it was hilarious. It's, it's at times extremely vulgar. Back to School is a funny movie, but you could see that it's, you're, you've got a big studio behind it now. They've polished him up a little bit. Uh, you know, it, it's a little more streamlined, but easy money to me is always going to be definitive Rodney Dangerfield. So for the first time in quite a while, Barry, we have reached what? out to some of the brother shippers and asked people to contribute movie reviews. So we have four uh, quick movie reviews from within the brothership. We are very thankful to, uh, I'm going to start off with Dwayne Aarons and this is, I believe the first time Dwayne's reviewed a film for us. So thank you so much, Dwayne. Uh, let me just read Dwayne's and then I'm going to throw it to Barry so he can read the next one. Dwayne said, good day, fine gentlemen. I don't know who he's referring to there, Barry. Uh, you know, yeah. Let me my dad. Yes, yeah, our dad, I, wa- right? I watched Easy Money and can say that I thought the movie was a great danger filled movie that was made even better with Joe Pesci. It really was a tale of two halves, and I really liked the second half of the movie with my favorite part being the, quote, regular guy, unquote, fashion show and guessing that Barry would be wearing the Italian restaurant look. Oh, my. Barry, it was a little <laughs> shot. Since he has managed many of the same. Just one wrestling note. Is it possible the WWE has watched Julio getting his lines from the bush and their scripting of everyone? Great movie, especially if you love Rodney. Yeah, he's uh, you know, he's on the money about that. I I, I don't know if I've actually ever bogarted that look before. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> but I'm certainly going to think about it now, you know, and think about, yeah, maybe that's the way to go. Jeff, I am super excited. Do you know why I'm super excited? We're going to Wales. We're going to Wales. He run 
like a Welshman, that John Lee. Yes, he does. So uh, our next reviewer is uh, now. Now we're going to get the, the the message from John. I am not from Wales. I'm there. Wales and England are two different worlds apart. But uh, yes, as far as we know, I'm sorry, have the stigmata now, John. You are fucking <laughs> from Wales, my man. The, you're from Wales, but John Lee, our second reviewer. In the UK, Rodney Dangerfield was more famous for his part in Caddyshack than for his stand-up routines. Having now had the opportunity to see him on Carson and his stand-up shows, I feel this film is much closer to that version of Rodney. World-weary, trying to catch a break, no respect given. Some of the humor probably wouldn't get past the censors today, dropping a load of joints out of a rabbit glove puppet in front of two small kids, for example. That said. His reply of their carrots when asked by the little girl what they were is brilliant. There are some genuinely laugh out loud moments in the film as Rodney first plays off against his mother-in-law in what is less chalk and cheese and more silk and caustic soda. And then again, I don't know. Does that make any sense to you? I'm assuming that's I'm what- sure that's some expression from the UK. I'm going to read that again. Sweet Lou, did you just catch that as well? Um, Rodney. Okay. Rodney first plays off his mother-in-law in in what is less chalk and cheese and more silk and caustic soda. And then against his cravings and desires, all whilst Jeff first time. Good good use of the word whilst. I believe it's pronounced whilst. Oh, you are so (laughs) correct. First time, first time whilst ever has been, uh, uh, used on our show whilst yeah. dealing with his daughter and what her up? estranged mm-hmm. husband. Please, Lou. What up, Cardiff? Okay. <laughs> <laughs> uh, this this will be Black my favorite. Rovers! Okay. All right. And her estranged husband as he struggles to make that easy money. All the main characters are given great comedy set pieces. For example, Mom, have you ever heard of foreplay? No, not with your father. <laughs> I I have to tell you, when I was watching it last night and that, uh-huh. that scene came on, I totally fucking popped because I knew it was uh-huh. coming. That was yep. very funny. Would I recommend it? Yes, absolutely. As a teenager, I thought it was funny as hell. And as a 52-year-old, I laugh on a whole different level now that I can totally relate to that central character. Also, there is a fantastic pair of breasts. No, they were fantastic. They really are. They're spectacular, actually, those breasts. Uh, Thank you, Baz and J-Dog, for the opportunity to become a reviewer for the broship. I hope it's 100% of what you expect. It was 100% of what we expect. So I have to say, uh, when he was talking about things that could not fly in today's world, how about the scene, Barry, where he and Joe Pesci are sitting at the park bench and he looks over and he sees the guy with the little kid and he says, see, you know, it's all about being a, a father. That's a parenting. That's what I like, you know, right there. You see that. And it's all. And then like, you hear the mother go, there he is. There he is. And she comes running up with a cop and the guy's wearing a trench coat. And I'm like, okay, they're making fun of a child molester. Right. <laughs> that probably would not fly today. I'm just going to go on a limb and say that it was yeah. a very funny scene though. It is a great scene, too. And that I think that's part of the beauty of this film, too, is that, yes, it probably wouldn't fly. And as you pointed out early on, th- this is unsanitized film, you know, yeah. back to the back to school, 
uh, Ladybugs, and he did a few, you know, I back to school, I think is the big one. They were all kind of polished up really clean and really nice. This one. No, this is, this is not PC by any stretch, but it's great. No. And where his daughter is helping him clean out like all his, uh, medication from the medicine cabinet and inside the roach motel. Yes, sir. He actually has (laughs) his roaches to smoke. That's just, and his daughter's like tapping him like, I know it's there. Oh God, that was funny. So, okay. Next we have, uh, the review by a friend of the show, Sean Delaney. Thank you very much, Sean. I appreciate being tapped for the review mainly because I don't think I've watched easy money all the way since the VHS rental days of the mid 80. It had me rolling as a teen watching it again. Closer to Rodney's age at the time is still funny as hell, but I relate to the humor at a different level. Where so many comedies from the period couldn't be made today, I think Easy Money's plot would survive in 2021 with some details modified, you think? Uh, something that registered with me now that didn't back then is the, uh, in the day was the pacing of the acts. The filmmaker spent a lot more time than I remembered in Act 1 on the daughter's wedding, uh, build-up, grandmother arriving, picking up the cake, the wedding, the reception, the ill-fated wedding night before getting to grandma's ultimatum, uh, ultimatum, not complaining as Jennifer Jason Lee in lingerie deserves as much time uh, on screen as possible. I think that's a big yes for me too, Barry. Yep. Yeah. Uh, but it seemed during act two, there were some serious time jumps and story threads that disappeared. Jeff Altman's drug dealing neighbor was a little, you need a little tootski, uh, you know, great. Uh, exactly. Uh, vanished after being introduced. The movie is halfway over before we see Jeffrey Jones character trying anything to break Monty's will. You feel like there was more material that was cut to get the movie down to 90 minutes and the ending seemed rushed. Rodney does a lot more physical comedy here than in his other movies, which is fun. If I had to pick one, the supporting cast MVP of the movie would be, and we did not plan this by the way, Barry, Sean writes the supporting cast MVP of the movie would have to be Pesci with Lily Hayden, the youngest daughter, a close second. Wow. Taylor Negron made the most of his screen time, ask Anthrax. And one of the biggest laughs for me was him hiding in the car at the end. In the end, I see the movie's flaws more now than I did back in 84, but it's still a solid 8 out of 10. Side note, as well as it did, I was shocked there wasn't an attempt to do an easy money TV series. And yeah, maybe there was. I don't know. But he certainly makes a good point there. And uh, so anyway, now. Uh, Barry, I believe you have John Moore's review. I have John Moore's review. A bit of running commentary. Rodney has quite the camera collection, very envious as a photographer myself. Always good to see Jeffrey Jones, known for his role as the villain in the finest masterpiece ever put to film, Howard the Duck. Rodney in the wedding dress. I hurt myself laughing. Guy in the bar looked like Pat Patterson. What was the guy in the, which guy in the bar? That was the, that was the guy the bartender kicked out because they had to go make the bet. At the that's track. right. That's right. That's right. When Joe Pesci. 40 to ju- 1, it's a sure thing. I'm close to right. the bar. When Joe Pesci jumped the rail to attack the jockey, I wondered if the jockey might have made a comment about a shine box. I get that. Ashtray in bed, certainly a sign of the times. Julio is a sleaze bag. Rodney had a junior <laughs> salad with no dressing. Real manly food there. Wait Kimberly, a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. Let me, let me sure. stop right there. So let me point out one other thing that I just thought of. The scene where they're at the table, and it's the four guys with, with Rodney Pesci and the other two guys, and somebody makes a comment to Pesci about, uh, you know, geez, you know, we're, we're not helping him here because, you know, we're contributing by uh, 
having him watch us do all these vices. And Pesci's smoking a cigarette. Everybody smokes in the movie, too. And he goes, yep. what? You don't think I can stop? I can put this out. And he puts out the cigarette. And right after he does that, he picks one out of the pack and lights it right back up. I can quit anytime I want, he says. Oh, it was very funny. It's hyster- it's hysterical. And, and so much of his, uh is funny. So Kimberly MacArthur, holy moly. Rodney on the table. By the and way, his I boxers. Playmate of the month, like a year before. I think, I think you're right. Because yeah. I looked up her IMDb page. Yes. So she was a playmate. Nice. Okay. Uh, uh, Rodney and his boxers. Rodney on the table and his boxers was funny, but not nearly as funny as the wedding dress scene. Did people actually dress like that? I believe they did. Like any people ever. I think they did. Those weren't even leisure suits. Movie hits hard at the start to get us hooked. Then slows down a lot, not unlike Caddyshack, I suppose. And I love Caddyshack. Favorite part, Rodney in the wedding dress. Least favorite part, Julio being alive at the end. Boy, he hates Julio. Can I call you dad now? (laughs) Can I call you dad now? Do you remember him from his other really big role right around the same time? Yeah, Fast Times Richmond High. He was Mr. Pizza Guy. Yep, he was the pizza guy. Uh Dun, 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 find out. After the wedding night, all I wanted to see was him run over by a bus. Couldn't Rodney have dropped the anchor on him or something? Blah. Thank you, John. So we want to thank uh, John, Sean, Dwayne, and our friend John Lee from Wales. So thank you so much, guys. Uh, we haven't done this in a long time. It's always fun to see uh, if we are somehow thinking differently than the, uh, the brothership, but apparently in this case, all four guys loved Rodney. So interesting story. Last night, the wife and I, the sainted Mrs. Bowdrin, went out to a Longhorn for the old uh, Tuesday night dinner, and we both ordered steak. So why am I telling you the story? Well, something interesting happened. My steak came out, medium rare, New York strip berry. Oh my God, absolute perfection. Okay, the wife gets a six ounce, uh, I don't know if it was a New York strip or something like that. And my wife ordered the steak medium, okay? And so the waitress says, everything okay? Yes, everything's fine. And so lo and behold, at the end of the meal, I'm looking over at Mrs. Bowdrin's plate, and I notice some, uh, dare I say, a little bit of the red on the on the plate, okay? Like that it was a little bit rare for my wife. And I was very surprised she didn't say anything. I said, what, was your steak not cooked medium? And she goes, eh, it was a little bit rare. Well, Mrs. Bowdrin is the queen of non-confrontation. That is a little private uh, name that I have for her. And I said, well, why didn't you say something? You know. And what had happened was our waitress, after that first appearance, after the meal had come, everything okay, she sort of ghosted us. Okay, we didn't see her for a while. And so I said, well, that's not right. Because then, of course, the check comes, and it's like 65 bucks or something like that. And uh, I'm using that Arcadian Vanguard uh, credit card. So, of course, money, no object, Barry. And so I said, uh, well, you know, this isn't right. We spent over $60 on this meal. And if you're not happy with your steak, I I think we should let someone know about it. Waitress comes back over. And I said, "Uh, yeah, listen, I just want to let you know that uh, my wife's steak uh, was ordered medium. And it came out maybe a little bit. Maybe a little bit cooked more than rare. This was not something where it was like medium rare instead of medium, you know, bear. And I said, and I told her, I said, my my steak was cooked absolutely perfectly. I was very happy with it. But my wife's was very disappointed in her steak. And the waitress looks at my wife and I was like, eh, yeah, it was kind of rare. And I said, 
kind of rare. It was basically tartar, which, by the way, Barry, I think that's the first time we've ever used the word tartar on this show. So uh, I then said, my God, I'm going to deal with this situation because the waitress said, well, I'll go cook you another steak. No, we just had steak. I don't want another steak. I was hoping for the old, uh, you know, hey, we can take something off your bill. You know, and I don't care what it is. Throw me some sort of bone. Take the appetizer off or something like that, right? No, no, nothing. All she wanted to do was cook us another steak. So I said, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to I'm going to look into this situation. And I placed a phone call to Barry Rose of formerly of Amber Lee, Amber PA. I, I almost said Amber PA, but you don't live there anymore. Barry. I don't. Yes. What's the yeah. new uh, city again? It's a Plymouth meeting. Thank you, Plymouth. There's a meeting of the Plymouth in Pennsylvania. <laughs> exactly. So I placed a phone call to Barry Rose and I said, Barry, as a former restaurant manager, what would you do in this situation? And you said. I said very simply is that, uh, A, if, if anybody's ever unhappy with something, un- unless it's a scam and you can generally pick up the vibe from somebody, but the, the first rule is the, the server should have gotten the manager involved. That, that is why you have the manager. Let them handle these issues and these difficulties. And uh, as you said, uh, she really didn't do that. She didn't get anybody else involved. And to her credit, you know, she was offering to get you uh, a replacement meal, even though Kim had already eaten it. Uh, but I think the big thing. And, and you know, there are, I've worked in restaurants where a diner will eat their meal and then say, I wasn't happy with it. I don't want to pay for it. And I I don't necessarily agree with that philosophy, but in your case, I did agree with your side. And I'll tell you why, because the server really never came back to check on you. I, I know the food was dropped. And the second the food was dropped, she said, is everything good? You hadn't even cut into your food yet. So you have no idea if the steaks are even cooked correctly. And then she basically ghosted you. So your wife really had two issues. She could have sat there and watched you eat your perfectly cooked steak, uh, or she could have just eaten alongside of you, even though it isn't what she wanted, which is what she did. Yeah. And so what happened was as we were walking out, we paid our bill and we, you know, we gave her a, a, a tip, you know, like it wasn't her fault. The steak hadn't been cooked properly. Uh, but you know, I, I, and I told her, I said, look, maybe the cook, uh, he cooked mine perfectly. Maybe he had a, you know, a bad uh, moment at the uh, steak that my wife was uh, being prepared, uh, having prepared. So anyway, so we go out. And so I asked the hostess, I said, uh, would you do me a favor? Could you get the manager for me? I'd like to speak to him. And of course I said, you know, by the way, I said, uh, you know, the problem that I have certainly is not with the hostess, you know, always putting a little positive spin on it. And so Absolutely. she said, Joe, sure, sure. Uh, and so she comes back, guy came out, was very nice. And uh, yeah, I don't know if he was Steve at Raising Cane, like we spoke last episode, but he was a very nice guy. And so I explained the situation to him. I said, look, I said, you know, I said, w- I'm not looking for a free meal here. I said, but I wanted, if nothing else. And, and he immediately stopped me and said, no, no, I, I completely understand what you're saying. And I said, you know, I said, I think the situation could have been rectified if she had been more attentive and come back and then found out that my wife was unhappy with the steak before my wife, you know, had a chance to, to eat any more of it. So he said, give me one second. I'll be right back. And so, you know, we were sitting there and, uh, you know, we were wondering what was going to happen. I said, you know, even if, he, again, if he had offered to take the steak and appetizers off, you know, the price of the appetizers, if he had thrown us any kind of bone, I would have been happy instead of just saying, yeah, yeah, we'll make, make you another steak or something. Okay. So he comes back and he gives me 
three $10 gift cards uh, for the restaurant, which I thought was very nice. And quite frankly, it was more than I expected. So he certainly handled his business properly and we will definitely be coming back there. And he said, when you come back, please ask to speak to me before, you know, before your meal. And, you know, I'm sure he's going to make sure everything is, uh, is good. And so this guy just going out of his way, giving me more than I expected, certainly uh, has maintained a customer at his restaurant. It's so smart to do something like that, too. And I think I've told a similar story where I went to Bonefish Grill, which I usually have very good experiences at. And I went to Bonefish years ago, and my wife and I sat up at the bar. We both ordered entrees. Mine came out. Hers followed by three or four minutes. And then it was completely not what she had ordered. And the server, and again, I didn't ask to speak to a manager. I didn't want to make a big deal, but the server was just really ineffectual. And at the end of the day, uh, my wife never ate her dinner and I ate mine. So we left there and we were kind of like, that sucked. And I went home and I shot an email off to, uh, and it wasn't a rude email. It was just like, Hey, you know, I just wanted you to know that today was kind of, you know, usually I love your food and the service. You guys are always on point, but today this guy, this was a Saturday night. This guy called me at like eight o'clock at night and apologized and said, please bring your wife and your family in. We're going to take care of you. And it was that immediate service and that immediate response to it. It, it. You know, there's an old adage in restaurants, Jeff, every restaurant will fuck up. It doesn't matter if you're Capital Grill, which is kind of the standard bearer for chain restaurants, but it doesn't matter if you're the best restaurant or the worst restaurant, every restaurant's going to have to going to make a mistake. And it's not about the mistake. It's about the recovery. Because if you go the distance, and and yes, there are people out there that will look for free shit, but what you really want, from speaking from my perspective, and I believe you're the same, we want an acknowledgement that we didn't get what we had actually ordered, that, you know, that the service was subpar. We want somebody to acknowledge and to hear us, because as we talked about last week, money is tight. You know, look, it's, I don't have a lot of uh, disposable income at the moment, you know, because of the COVID and, and my, my separation, but there's a lot of people that are out there. A lot of people are working jobs where they might make 12 or $13 per hour. So if you go out to a nice dinner, you know, you're, you're conceivably looking at half of a day's pay, maybe a full day's pay for that dinner. You have a right to really enjoy that meal. And when a restaurant owner or manager, such as this guy did, when, when they recognize that, that, that means the world to me. I, I think that is so important. And I got to tell you, even if I thought the food was okay and not through the roof, it was just like, yeah, it was good. If the service was that good, being that the manager cared that much to act like that, I would go back to that restaurant, Jeff. So, and absolutely. But think about it. If we had walked out of there, okay, my wife, queen of non-confrontation, sure. if we had gone out to the car the very uh, good let, point you're ready to make, Jeff. <laughs> let, let's say, let's say in a week or two, I'm like, where do we want to go to dinner? If I yep. had mentioned this place, <laughs> Kim would have gone, nope, nope, because last time we were there, we had a bad experience. That's exactly now, what has happened. Yes. In a couple of weeks, when I mention this place again, Kim's gonna go, Oh, yeah, no, that's fine. Yeah, we can go back there. And you know, that's what it's all about. Th- so think about it because of his actions, as opposed to the actions of his uh, you know, waitress or or server. And, you know, again, I I didn't I, I told him, I said, look. Other than the fact that she disappeared at the beginning of the service, she was fine. I had no problems with her, and I tipped her. I didn't stiff her. I'm not somebody that's going to, you know, completely shine her on the tip. 
But if we had walked out of there without speaking to the manager, we would not have wanted to go back there again. Now, because we did take the time, and this is what Barry's trying to say. If you're not happy, you know, again, we spent $60 for a couple of steaks and, and, you know, an appetizer. And if you're not happy, mention it to somebody. Now, don't be a flaming asshole. Be respectful. Point out to the manager, hey, this was the things about my meal that were good, that we liked. But we were a little disappointed in this. And you know what? Who knows? Maybe maybe the guy's going to say, yeah, well, that's too fucking bad. You know? And then you'll know not to go back to that place. There you but go. But if he takes, he takes care of you, like Steve did at Raising Cane, you can bet your sweet ass the next time Barry goes back to Boston, he's going to that Raising Cane. I can tell you that. Yeah, and I think we've talked about this previously, but there was a uh, a survey that was put out years ago, and it said, what's more important to the average diner uh, when they go out to eat? Is it food or service? And common wisdom is going to say food. It's a restaurant. I'm going out to eat. As it turned out, it was actually service by about five or six points. It was like 56 to 44 or something like I that. I smell a new pole in the group, Barry. Yeah, yeah. But food is, uh, you know, look, you're, you're, going, you're going to a restaurant, obviously, for food. But if you, would you go to a place, Jeff, if the food is very good, if you find the service is subpar or even worse? I wouldn't. Mary, before we go on much further, I do want to take a quick moment to mention friend of the show, Ian Totten, posted recently about some uh, health problems that his wife, Lorraine, was going through. So I know you joined me in just wanting to wish Ian and his wife, Lorraine, a uh, quick, speedy recovery and good health. Yeah, absolutely, too. Yeah, it's a, it sounds uh, that it was a pretty scary situation, but uh, it also sounds like Ian, as Ian generally does, stepped up, handled the situation, and uh, was able to be there for his wife and his family. And I think they've, they've faced some, uh, some hardships over the last few years. There's been a lot of good stuff as well. So, uh, you know, for whatever it is, Ian always seems to come out on the side of right in these situations. So I know we're all, we're all extremely grateful uh, that he and his family are doing well. And I also noticed, uh, not to make this the health report here from Breaking Cafe with Bowder and Barry, but uh, our old friend Joe Stassi, I believe, undergoing hip surgery today. So, Joe, hang in there and get back to running a little track and field real soon, my man. Yeah, I like Joe a lot. I'm not sure that Joe has ever listened to an episode of this podcast. I know really? he's in our well, Facebook. And Joe yeah. can go fuck himself. <laughs> there you go. He's, uh, he is, he's in our Facebook group. Joe is a, and Joe is a, uh, I'm going to say he's a wrestling historian because he probably likes that term where I hate it, but he does a great job. He has uh, been archiving Bruiser Brody and ICW, the old PAFA organization, for years. Uh, and Joe's a big guy. I don't know if you... Uh, Joe's like six, five, six. Joe's just a big guy, uh, but he's a, he's a good guy. So definitely Joe, if you're listening and I know that you're not, please get better soon. Okay. So before we get to our match of the week, which by the way, a great one, Barry, Mrs. Bowdrin was out at the store the other day. And you know what she picked up for me? Don't have you heard of no, no donuts. That was a good guess though. Have you heard of the new Reese's mellow top peanut butter cup? Oh my, and yes, I have, and I've been searching and I can't find them. Am I going to get a review right now? Right now, your I, friend, on, I'm sitting down, I'm sitting down. All right. Has opened it up. He's examining it. What you got is, uh, you got the white topping, uh, I guess your, your marshmallow as topping and then the normal, uh, peanut butter cup. So what we have is a combination chocolate, peanut butter and marshmallow berry. So now for the benefit of you and the listeners, 
I take my first bite. Hmm. Let me see. I have to say, I love a good marshmallow at a campfire or barbecue. Um, I'm not a big Three Musketeers fan. That's the most famous marshmallow-related candy bar that I can think of. Hmm. You're not raving about it, though. It, it's I, not, let's put it this way. It's not bad. All right. But it's no nutrageous bar. I'll put it that way. Have you seen? So I'll give it a, doing a lot. I'll give it a slight thumbs up. Go ahead. Slight. All right. That's not, but that's not a ringing endorsement. No, it's slight. not a raving yeah. nutrageous bar, but it's, it's not, it's not bad. All know, right. It's certainly something you can try. What's Go the ahead. texture like? What's the texture of the marshmallow like? Uh, it is a, a harder marshmallow. Ooh. And by the way, as long as you were thinking about that, when you're at uh, the old campfire or you're barbecued on the grill and you have some marshmallows, how do you like your marshmallows? This is an area where Mrs. Bowder and I widely disagree. I So I am a, let's char that mother effer as black as could be. And then yes. if I, exactly. <laughs> I, I want like that it. fucker on fire. Yes, sir. Then I will extinguish the flame and put the charred remains in my mouth. And Mrs. Boudron, I mean, she wanted to barely have a browning on the outside. Oh, no. And I'm like, hey, you, you want toasted marshmallow? Those aren't even toasted. What is that? So. Yeah, that, that's just like a heated up marshmallow. Exactly. It's a, exactly. I'm with you on that, too. And I'll tell you what, there is a uh, years ago, and I don't know, and Bruce Cohen would know this because Bruce Cohen is uh, my go-to guy with Shake Shack. But He knows every single food-related day that there is on a calendar year. The man is absolutely amazing. He does. And he's got to have, I've never asked him, but he's got to have some sort of specific calendar that's just all related to food. But Shake Shack years ago was doing this milkshake or this concrete that they were doing, and it was toasted marshmallow. And I got to tell you, it was spectacular. Uh, I'm a huge fan of that. So, All right. Well, all right. now, Barry, it is time to go to our match of the week. We are going June 3rd, 1994. As recommended by new moderator Mark Hertwick, see the benefits of being a moderator and what they get you, Barry. He reached out to me personally, not you, but to me personally and said, have you guys ever reviewed this particular match? And I honestly said, you know what? I do not think we uh, did. And he said, this, according to Mark, was the very first match that Meltzer ever gave a six-star review to. So with that sort of pressure surrounding you, Barry, I give you Mitsuhara Misawa versus Toshiaki Kawada. What'd you think? <laughs> it's a lot of pressure right now, Jeff. That okay. I, I'm feeling so. Uh, first, Don't off, crumble under the pressure. It's it, that's clearly going to happen. It's between that and then the uh, the hardened marshmallow, which is a little uh, got me a little upset. I will but... say, based on some stuff you told us pre-recording, <laughs> I have trouble with this issue. Uh, uh, a tongue injury has befallen Mr. Rose at the time yeah. of this recording. Please go into details before we talk about Masawa and Kawada. Yes. So uh, we <laughs> how how far deep into this conversation no, is going to go? Don't go Not, as deep as our other conversation. Okay. We I just want to make sure. <laughs> <laughs> just to make sure. But uh, so I was uh, I was I got a pizza last night. It was WrestleMania. I figured you know what we'll do pizza two nights in a row. I did do it Saturday. I finished that one. And I got a pizza and I took a bite. First bite, second bite, I think. And I bit down hard on my tongue. Now biting on my tongue is something that uh, it happens to me probably once every three to six months. Uh, not a big deal. I bounce back. But yet when I bit my tongue, I knew that this was a little different. 
and I was like, shit, that really hurts. So I, uh, I went in the, uh, the bathroom, uh, where I bathe and I looked oh, in the mirror. That's good to know it's not the sink. Go ahead. Yeah. Well, they call it a bathroom and it's that's like, true. I don't know. Is it a restroom? I'm not going into rest. You know, they should call it the shitter. Cause that's what it is. I had a fifth grade teacher, uh, shout out to my former fifth grade teacher, Ms. Gray and Ms. Gray would not let you go to the restroom. If you said, Ms. Gray, I need to go to the bathroom. She insisted that her fifth grade students, which were like nine or 10, something, 11 years old, you had to say, I need to go to the laboratory. Do you know why? Because there's no baths in the bathroom, she would say. Anyway, I digress. And, and to some degree, she's right. A laboratory sounds bizarre as well. But in any case, I, I went into the, uh, the room where the, uh, the toilet <laughs> is in a mirror. <laughs> and I looked, and there was blood literally maybe a quarter of an inch shooting out of my tongue. So a little concerned, uh, you know, it's like, all right. So I, I, uh, I rinsed my mouth out several times, still shooting. Like th- there's like a stream of blood shooting out. And I, for a moment I get, I got concerned. I'm like, does this mean I have to go to the hospital? Is this going to be a stitch? Uh, and that might've been the wisest course, but I, I did apply pressure as you said, Jeff off, uh, off air as you know, I, there was a specific type of what kind of bandage did I need? A, a compression bandage. A compression bandage. Well, no, this was a bounty paper towel. Oh, okay. Shoved up against my tongue on yes, the inside they, of my. Uh, mouth. Hold on one second. Let let let's just join the audience. Uh, I will ask you now <laughs> for about three seconds. Just get a visual picture of that bounty being shoved right into Barry's mouth. And we're good. Okay, go ahead, Barry. Continue. <laughs> And, uh, I, and I had to change it a couple of times soaked with blood. And again, first thing that's going through my head is, is this, am I going to have to get in the car now and miss WrestleMania the second night of, uh, of the, the biggest, we know that Vince does not like blood on his pay-per-views. No, it's not not about to have it, but, uh, but I did miss an opportunity. I took no photos of this where I clearly should have, there was blood streaming out my mouth and I didn't do it. But once the bleeding stopped, I did a little saltwater rinse and I ate four more slices of pizza and life goes on today. A little sore. I'm today. I'm on, uh, I'm on soft foods like jello rice pudding and yogurt because, uh, I didn't sleep last night because every time my tongue touched my teeth, I was jolted. It's not easy for you to say, but anyway. No, I don't know if you could tell that like literally spit was flying, but uh, big night. But let's get back to the important thing. Mark Hurtweck, uh, as you mentioned, our newest Facebook moderator. If you're not in our Facebook group, too, you are. And why aren't you? Why? There's literally, I I get that a lot of people hate social media these days. There's a lot of negativity. Our group is kind of a haven where it's a safe zone. Come in, have fun. Unless you like pineapple on pizza, because God knows we give those people a lot of shit. But other than that, we we have a good time. You know, if, I get if you don't want to be on Facebook. At the same time, just join our group. Don't do anything else. Just come in for the group. Mark doing a great job along with uh, Michael and John Doe, uh, and you and I occasionally show up and cause a little shit. But uh, this Jeff, this is a great match, and I'll tell you what I remember. I was uh, I was deep in the tape trading uh, right around this time. I don't know how deep, but fairly deep. And I think actually Gabe Daigle uh, that I mentioned to uh, to you off air. I think I was actually getting tapes from Gabe at that point. This match is spectacular, and uh, currently playing on my YouTube is a match from these two Misawa and Kobashi. Probably I think it's two or three years later uh, that they had a rematch, and uh, 
and that just continued to stream. This match is, and, and you had mentioned a six-star match, and you know what? I, it, it's hard to say if this match deserves six stars, but I, I don't know, you know, does any match deserve six stars? If any match did, it probably is this one as well. Misawa was... He was a god to these people, to the Japanese people. And there's a, a point in this match towards the end uh, where the fans are just chanting his name. And there's two things that make the other. I'll take it back. There's three things that make this match great. One is this match is great. So the guys in the ring clearly are laying it out. The second is the fans. We've talked about it dozens of times when fans are heavily vested into something. They can make something that's even not great really great this match already was great so they're they're elevating it to the next level this match also has uh the proverbial big match feel not all matches have that this match you know this is a big deal let me let me interrupt you one second my notes i wrote down just the intros of the match screams quote this is a big deal and uh, you absolutely nailed it they have promoted this match so that the fans that are in the building, the fans watching on TV, know this is really important. And I love the way that Baba used to do that. Please continue. And and to that aspect too, Baba's on commentary, I believe, for uh, for one of the, for this match, right? That's Baba, yes, which has got to be near the end of his life, right? Wasn't Baba gone like, uh, for the next five years? Three years? Like, yeah, like five years. All right. Was it 99 he left? That he, he uh, on? While you're talking, I'm going to look that up real quick. All right. Then I'll continue to talk, which is not easy for me to do currently with my tongue. But uh, it, th- this match is, is, A, Bob is on commentary. And 1999. Thank you. So it was five-year difference. I liked Bob on commentary. I don't understand a single word he's saying. But there's a, there's a, a dynamic. First off, the guys who are doing the commentating – are spectacular because I don't under, I understand like three words in Japanese, but the inflection, the, when they're screaming there, the one guy loses his voice. Essentially. He's like hoarse and doesn't have a voice. There's such emotion coming out in their voices. It reminds me of, uh, of old school wrestling it reminds me of Jr. 30 years ago and 35 years ago when, you know, he would lose his voice doing the mid South or the UWF broadcasts. Uh, that to me, you know, you're selling it, but watching the match, watching these people at ringside who are losing their shit. And we're talking about Japanese men wearing suits and ties, jackets and ties that are still just losing their minds. This match is something you have to go out of your way for. Uh, I was a big fan of Kawada. You know, Misawa is a legend. Kawada, I don't think gets enough credit. And uh, I, I think partly, you know, he was in that uh, that tag team with Fuyuki for years. Uh, it was Footloose, right, Jeff? Yes. And he was in Footloose, and uh, Fuyuki actually, it was uh, Samson Fuyuki, if I'm correct. Samson uh, he, Ricky Fuyuki. Ricky, right. He, his dream was to be Ricky Choshu, yes. Right, exactly. And he uh, he passed away, I believe, in his 30s of cancer. Uh, so he was a, a fairly young guy. Kawada then got the push and, uh, Kawada is, you know, the definition of this era. He's the definition of a badass because when you look at him, he's missing, you know, two or three or four of his front teeth. There's just this, he, he looks like a hockey enforcer. You know, there's just this big gape, uh, in the middle of where his teeth used to be, but you know, his kicks and that, that was the whole premise behind footloose too, was that their kicks, his kicks are just deadly. I mean, these are just deadly kicks. And, uh, I always felt that Kawada should have been 
a bigger star. I, I think a lot of it, you know, and I, I spoiler alert, I'm going to tell you who won the match in about two seconds if you just want to lower the volume. Misawa wins it. And that, that might be the only flaw that I have in the match because I think everybody expected Misawa to win. Would you agree with that part? Well, here's the thing. As I'm watching the match, and, and I'll let you continue with your thoughts if you haven't finished yet, but tell me if you think I'm right or wrong on this. Sure. Both guys are huge baby faces. This is not like one guy, you know, like the traditional, if Masao was fighting Hansen or Gordy or Williams, where they've sort of portrayed the American guy as the uh, the foreign invader, you know, much like Hogan against the Iron Sheik kind of thing, uh, but not to that extreme. But you have two guys that are really considered baby faces, and almost I was trying to come up with a way I could contextualize what this match meant to the fans. This is to me the equivalent. If you had Bob Backlund around 1978 or 79, if he had been given a match against Bruno in Madison square garden, the way the fans would have reacted and the fact that the fans love both guys, you know, and they, they wanted greatness from the match, but they didn't want it at the expense of booing one guy. They wanted to cheer because they wanted to see both guys do well. And I really think that's the way the fans treated this match. Uh, I would have been happy if this match had ended up as a draw because I think both guys really kind of earned it. But this was at a point where Baba had completely switched his direction uh, that had been going on, eh, say, seven to ten years before that, where almost every main event was a double countout so that nobody got a, a big, strong win. And here, Masawa gets the really strong win. Uh, but I got to be honest with you, it, you know, Baba had such a sense of when was the right time to elevate that guy to the next level. And apparently he just felt like it wasn't Kawada's time. And uh, he was probably one of the greatest promoters of all time. And certainly it's not my place to sit, you know, sit there and say, no, Baba was wrong and not elevating, you know, Kawada at this point. No, and, and let me let me also say I think I'm gonna, I'm in full agreement with you. I think Baba is easily one of the greatest promoters of all time, if not the greatest promoter of all time. And what he did in the 1990s for all Japan uh, was in a lot of ways revolutionary. Clean finishes. I mean, I I just think that was just such an amazing direction to go, and that it was so honest and fair to the ticket buyer and the fans. I I just love that. Uh, you know, the old adage of professional wrestling is uh, to keep them coming back. And, you know, they I, I think the promoters always felt that if they did a cheap finish at the end and they screwed somebody out, then people would continue to buy tickets. Obviously, Baba won a different route, but it never hurt his gait because uh, he was still able to draw with it. My only thing is that I, I think I think in taking into account what you just said is that Misawa it was clearly known that Misawa was the chosen one at that point and having Kawada and, and I'm not knocking that decision because Misawa was at a different level than just about every other professional wrestler back then. But I, I think having a surprise finish uh, with having Kawada win uh, might've been more beneficial. But again, I'm looking back at this, um, you know, 37 years later now, and I don't understand all the dynamics and variables that were involved. So, uh, you know, it, and that doesn't really detract from the match, because as I said, and as you said, this match is at a clearly at a different level. This is two guys, you know, you go back to, to watching professional wrestling and you and I, Jeff have been watching for a couple of years at this stage. And, you know, you watch guys, we both have, we both have been in attendance and at live cards together 
where guys have uh, just dialed it in. That guys are just, yeah, they're phoning it in tonight. They're going to go through some motions. They're going to collect their money and they're going to go home. Then you watch a match like this where these guys literally just kill each other and beat the shit out of each other in the ring. Uh, and they do it for, as Jeff, as I pointed out, almost 40 minutes. Uh, it is something really that, uh, you know, there's a respect level. And this is probably why professional wrestling in Japan is also viewed very differently than it is in our country. Yeah, uh, so I didn't mention this was, uh, took place at Budokan Hall. Um, some really impressive things that I noticed about the match. Uh, and before I say this, let me mention the other thing about this particular program and the fact that I've talked before about how knowledgeable about the storylines the Japanese fans were is that uh, Masawa and Kawada, I don't know if they went to school together or they like knew each other in high school or they competed against each other in high school from opposing teams, but this was a, a this was a program that literally went back to when these guys were in high school. So they would throw that back at the fans. Oh, hell yeah. these guys have known each other for, you know, over 15 years and they've been rivals. For, so this was not like, you know, like, oh, these two guys just uh, just started facing one another. They milked this program good and they did a great job at it. Uh, so uh, they do a sequence at one point in the match very early on where Kawada hits this spinning back heel kick. That looks like it almost decapitates Masawa. And then the, the incredible thing is Masawa recovers, gets back to his feet, and gives him a backdrop. And it's just an amazing sequence. Uh, Kawada does something. I've ne- I don't think I've ever seen this before, Barry. He chops and slaps to Masawa's back. You know, right. as Masawa is kind of trying to make his way back to his feet, he's struggling to get up. And Masawa will come up and give him that sort of that Ronnie Garvin looking uh, slapped to the back, just like, and just echoes throughout the whole arena and the crowd's like, ooh, you know, and then he'll not just slap him, he starts chopping him and it ends up where Masawa, because his ears are cauliflowered, his ears start to bleed. And that's like a, that's a pretty, uh, pretty intense moment when the guy notices that his ear is bleeding from the shots that he's taken bare. Yeah, it is too. And it's, I, I think that the majority of our, if not all of our listeners know Masawa died in the ring as well. He was taking a, uh, I guess it what was it? A, uh, it was a belly to back or even just a side salto suplex yeah. it was something fairly innocuous looking as yeah. well. Compared to some of the, some of the shots that he'd taken in other yeah. matches, it, it was fairly innocuous, um, relatively speaking. Yeah. And he, uh, I remember seeing it and go, wow. And, and that was it. He just never got up from that and died in the ring. And I, I think that was obviously just from years of, uh, just abuse and stuff like that. What is Kawada is Kawada last I heard he owned a restaurant in yes, Japan. I believe he does. Yeah. Gotcha. I think, uh, I, I think our old friend Cholminski has uh, been to his restaurant. As a matter of fact, I think he's posted photos before of him, uh, meeting with Kawada and, you know, one of the things, and I think we've mentioned this to each other before is, uh, all the years that Kawada worked this kind of style in the ring, when you see pictures of him now, and I want to say, uh, based on how old I am and how old you are, I think he's somewhere in the middle of the two of us. So, but that being said, he looks a good 10 years older than both of us. I think he, he just, he, you can really see the effect of all those years in the ring and the punishment that he took bear. Yeah. He, he, there's something with the hair and I'm not sure if he's dying it or if it's a toupee, uh, but there is something with the hair, but facially he looks old. He's still missing the teeth. He doesn't smile for his photos. Uh, he doesn't look happy or healthy, but the hair looks like the hair of like a 25 year old. So, uh, clearly something with that, but I think you're right. I think Cholminski did go to his restaurant. 
Yeah. So let's talk about the finish bearer. Holy shit. Yeah. Uh, uh, Kawada has uh, several near falls on Misawa, and then Misawa turns it around. He gives him the tiger driver. Barry, tell me, did you jump out of the seat thinking that Masawa had killed Kawada? Because I sure the hell did. <laughs> yeah, I did. There, there's a couple of moments in this match where I think he's killed him. Uh, but I would say the last, and this is what Japan has always done so well. And obviously, uh, U.S. companies have tried to copy this formula. The last 10 minutes of this match is as good as any 10 minutes of any match you will ever watch in your life. There are false finishes galore. Uh, and the truth is, you know, I, I, I did feel that Misawa was going to win. I didn't remember what the ending was, but, uh, there are moments when you go, man, Kawada's got him. Kawada's got him, but they both look like they're just killing each other out there. Yeah. And the ending, uh, and I will post a link to this match on our Facebook group. Uh, let me just say it will harken back to the infamous Sid vicious Brian Pillman Phoenix, Arizona, I want to say, was it 91 or 92, Bear? I believe uh, 91, right? Where he he hits the head on the cage, giving him a powerbomb, and Pillman lands, and you think that Pillman is dead. Just not selling the move, just the angle that his head hits the mat. That's very similar, and Kawada is on the mat for quite a while. Uh, I don't know whether or not he may have sustained a concussion, or I certainly wouldn't be shocked if he can't, if he didn't. Uh, The announcer, though, Barry, completely losing his shit, and that's a great part because he... Uh, much you, you you're absolutely correct, Barry. Uh, would I say you're 100 percent correct, Bear? I'm 100 percent correct, right? Check. Check. Okay. Uh, you know, uh, but very similar to Jim Ross at the peak of his career uh, when he's losing it. You know, my God, he's broken him and broken him in half. Uh, that kind of uh, emotional impact. Uh, as a matter of fact, let, let me throw something out there for you people that uh, are into this kind of thing, uh, Barry. I, I know I don't think you're a big golf fan, are you? Are I'm you? not. No. Okay. So yesterday, maybe you heard. Uh, a Japanese guy, I believe his name was Matsuyama, won the Masters tournament. First Japanese guy to ever win the Masters in the history of that event. And it was a huge, huge moment. And they were trying to convey just what a big deal this was in Japan uh, for this guy and what it's going to mean for the future of the sport in Japan. But so what CBS did was there was a shot, I want to say about on the 16th, where uh, where Matsuyama hits his uh, shot from the fairway and it hits the green and bounces all, you know, past the uh the uh, the putting green and and rolls into the water and they play the Japanese broadcast team and it's it's just like listening to the end of this match because the guy just starts completely losing his shit because here he thinks that Matsuyama has blown the Masters because he's hit the shot into the water and he's just screaming his head off and losing his voice and I found it to be very similar to the end of this match when the guy that's doing the play by play alongside of Baba just completely loses his mind. So, yeah, we're going to post a link to this match. Definitely go out of your way. This is an amazing, amazing match. And, wow, Giant Baba and the King's Road style of all Japan simply on fire at this point, Barry. Absolutely, too, Jeff. And I here's something, too. Have we ever discussed golf? Are you a golf guy? I am, I am one of those guys that I will watch the big tournaments like the Masters, the U.S. Open, uh, you know, I'll, I, I'm not, I'm not one that'll sit there and watch like, okay, let me watch all 18 holes. I can't do that. Uh, although I will admit last year, COVID, when all the events around the world stopped, when they finally started, you know, and golf was the first thing that was back on TV, but no fans on, you know, along the fairways because I had nothing else to watch. I started watching a few golf tournaments just, you know, because I was like, I got, uh, you know, and the other thing is, uh, let's remember that's when I was in the hospital. And so there's literally 
nothing else on in the hospital TV. So I was like, what the hell? I'm going to watch me some golf. So I started watching golf. But no, to answer your question, not a huge golf guy. But, uh, you know, Masters, U.S. Open, that kind of thing. I'll watch the last few holes just to see who wins. Yeah, what about what about bowling? You a big bowling guy? Uh, and shout out to our friend Dave Lamont who calls bowling for ESPN, but I am not a I'm not a bowling guy. Yeah, I'm not a bowling guy. What's the the bowler's name that does a lot of I don't know if you're are you even familiar with there's a there's a bowler and I, he's a championship bowler. He uh he does a lot of wrestling shit. I think he's got belts and he he really mimics and tries to uh, to play himself off. He does like you do smell what the rock is cooking, but he's changed the words. You familiar with this guy at all? Uh, yeah, I, I think his name is De Jesus. De Jesus, that's it. <laughs> I got it. I got it. anybody Thank else you. get that? I got. I that. hope so. I hope Lou got it. So Blue got it. Anyway, uh, Barry, before we start doing the wrap up, the go home. I would like to get. I did not watch it, but I know you watch both nights. If you could give us a night one. Review scale of one to 10 and then a night two scale of one to 10 reviews on both nights. Yeah. And, uh, so the first night I would give a, I would probably go a seven to a seven, five. And to, to quantify that, uh, there was nothing wrong with what took place. I felt it was almost an epi- a glorified episode of raw. I, I didn't see much that differentiated, uh, what you would see on Monday night for three hours versus uh, what you would see at WrestleMania the first night, but every match was fine. Like there was really not a dog. Maybe the women's tag match wasn't great. Uh, and, and the bad bunny thing I actually fell asleep for. I, I really dislike celebrities and professional wrestling outside celebrities coming into the world of professional wrestling. I get why they do it. Certainly it's going to draw attention. It's going to increase numbers, blah, blah, blah. But everything that I've read, people are saying Bad Bunny is uh, he's got a future if he wants it as a, that he was fantastic. And uh, many people whose res- whose opinions I respect are actually saying that uh, he his performance was the best of any celebrity that they can ever recall. So uh, props to him for actually, you know, putting in the time and making it happen. I enjoyed night number two more. And uh, I think I'm also in the minority on that because it seems like a lot of people enjoyed the first night more. But I uh, I really really liked uh, the the match, the main event, which was Roman Reigns versus Edge versus Daniel Bryan. Uh, a lot of speculation as to why they put Daniel Bryan in the match, but I I really thought it was great. I thought it was innovative, and I loved the ending. Spoiler alert, because you're gonna get it. Roman Reigns won, and he pinned both guys. He actually drug over, I think he drug over uh, Edge, put him on top of Daniel Bryan, and then covered both for the win. And it was a real dominant win, which I think if you're going to build around somebody, I think it's a good idea. So I enjoyed WrestleMania. Again, first night, eh, I was kind of second night. I liked a little, a little bit more. Uh, so what's your, uh, what's your score, 1 to 10 on night two? Night two, I would probably go a solid. I mean, for by WWE standards, I would go an eight five. By normal standards, probably an eight. Uh, but I enjoy. But I, I would say if you can go out of your way to see WrestleMania, uh, maybe do that. You can probably fast forward through a couple of matches. I'll tell you the one match which was a little bit of a disappointment uh, for me when I was surprised was the Rhea Ripley Oscar match, Jeff and. Uh, they, for whatever reason, just didn't quite seem to be gelling in the ring. And uh, Rhea Ripley, again, spoiler alert, is your new champion. She won. Uh, 
and uh, I think she's great. I just, for whatever reason, this match didn't quite quite do it for me. No. All righty. I will just say, uh, for those of you that know that I am not a follower of today's WWE product, uh, I actually texted Barry on Saturday afternoon and said, uh, Barry, what's the main event of tonight's you did? show? <laughs> Which That just shows you uh, how into the whole card I was. So anyway, Barry, great show. Loved having uh, Lily Hayden on. Lots of name dropping. Lots of fun there. And we really did. Uh, I hope we have her back. She was a great, great guest. She was so much fun too. And you know, it's so great because I, I can clearly remember where I was when I saw easy money for the first time. And even the friends I was with, uh, and we sat and I just, and now being able to, you know, 38 years later to have a conversation with her and what a life she's led, what an exciting guest, what a great person. Uh, I really enjoyed, uh, our time with her today and I am, I'm hopeful. I'm hopeful. She really will come back, you know? Absolutely. So on behalf of my co-host, Barry Rose, and our producer, the sweet man, Lou Kippelman, I would like to remind you that Breaking Kayfabe with Bowdrin and Barry, a production of the Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network. Barry, I'm going to leave the folks a little tease. We have, in fact, recorded, I'm going to say a good half of our Patreon episode number one. Boom! Right there, Barry. I know you're as excited about this as I am. Oh, even more so. Absolutely. Yes, yes, indeed. So we will be offering further details. I believe they will be coming from the great Brian Last. So until next week, we will see you next time, folks. We're out. We're out.